Welcome to another episode of Vonde Radio and today I am honoured to be joined by uh, Mr. Luis Infante. Mr. Luis Infante is a mutual friend of a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Miguel Ayuso Torres and he is a prominent member of the, the contemporary Carlist movement, the Communion Traditionalista. He is a, a prominent member of the Secretariat for Prince Don Sixto Enrique de Bourbon Palma and has held a variety of teaching positions in the Carlist movement across many decades. He also is a prominent translator and teacher of Carlist thought. So, Mr. Infante, it is a great pleasure to speak to you. Buenos dias. Well, I've uh, been looking forward to talking with you for a long time because the Carlist movement really exerts a fascination on me and I think any uh, counter-revolutionary Catholic for a number of reasons I I think it's one of the most remarkable counter-revolutionary legitimist traditional movements in Christendom really certainly one of the most long-lived and the amount of scholarship that's available in the English language is quite small so it's a real privilege to speak to someone with as much knowledge and experiences yourself about the the Carlist movement so I think the uh, something that most traditional Catholics are aware of when they consider the Carlist movement is the Carlist motto, if you like, of Dios Patria Re Fueros. So could could you just expand on that motto for us as a, a starting point, as a preamble to consider the significance of the Carlist movement? Yes, of course. Well, first of all, that was a very kind introduction of yours, maybe excessively generous, but um, right, coming to our motto. God, Dios, that obviously uh, refers as to the basic identity of Spain, of the Spains. Um, 
uh, a Catholic thinker of the 19th century stated that Catholic unity was Spain's constitution and uh, against which no law, no decision of those in authority could stand. Now, Catholic unity is a conception which goes far beyond uh, Catholic confessionalism, as some others would have it. I mean, it is not the uh, government, the state, the king, proclaiming themselves Catholic. In fact, they don't even do that. Uh, proclamation of Catholicism is something that was introduced in Spain by the liberals in order to disguise their own uh, um, further, their own agenda, their own real intentions. Uh, Catholic unity basically means that Spain, as a political entity, came into existence at the Third Council of Toledo, and a couple of centuries before the uh, Islamic invasion. And it came into existence when the Visigoth king, uh, Recaredo, Richard, if you like, uh, officially converted to Catholicism, renouncing uh, the Arian heresy that Visigoths had professed before, and his court with him. So those were the last non-Catholics left in Spain at the time. Catholic unity was attained then, and uh, since then it's been the main referral for Spanish politics uh, to this day, which opens uh, uh, interesting uh, arguments in, in contemporary Catholic thought, but uh, we'll leave that for later. Uh, so, Catholic unity basically means everything in Spain is Catholic, uh, and uh, anything that goes against that must be rejected. So that's actually the main thing about uh, Catholic political thought. Of course, that also has consequences. Uh, patria, fatherland, our country, it is exactly that after God. It is a political community that developed throughout history and uh, that has a series of um, characteristics handed down from generation to generation and that bind us together as a political community. So that's something that we are uh, bound to defend, as St. Thomas Aquinas says, uh, basically along the, along the lines of the fourth commandment of God's law, uh, the saying that you will have to honor thy father and thy mother, you will honor uh, thy fatherland. Uh, fueros, that's always been a difficult word to translate, because it is, etymologically, you can go back to the Roman Forum, etc., but its development throughout uh, Spain's legal history has led to a meaning that uh, whenever I've had to translate it into English, I've always, I've always needed that uh, nasty resource of footnotes, because yes. it, it, it is basically impossible to translate otherwise. Sometimes the English word charter works, sometimes. Like, for example, uh, municipal charters, like, you know, fueros granted by the king to different uh, uh, local entities, uh, or uh, university charters, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, but it goes beyond that, because it connects both to the uh, uh, two main legal traditions that you will find in the source of a Spanish law, that is Roman law and Visigothic law, uh, plus uh, uh, custom, local custom that sometimes goes far beyond the Roman tradition. 
they all combine to form that uh, legal tradition with, of course, the uh, proper concept of natural law, the one as explained by uh, uh, the church. And uh, that forms an interesting body, which in a traditional conception of society is not uh, a legal code in the modern way, in the, in the modern fashion that uh, in which somebody, suppose some, you may call it parliament or whatever, supposedly representing the nation, uh, starts uh, issuing laws and, uh, and making a systematic uh, uh, organization of those, uh, of those laws. Uh, no, the uh, concept of fueros means that there is a lot of laws and regulations that predate the state itself and cannot be done away with. And in fact, they will take precedence over the decisions of the central government, even over the decisions of the king. There is an extreme expression of that in the old uh, oath that the uh, Cortes of Aragon took when a new king was installed. Which, uh, well, this is a shortened form, it's not that the real one is much longer, but it was something like, Nos que valemos tanto como vos, y todos juntos más que vos, juramos obedeceros si respetáis nuestros fueros, y si no, no. Meaning, uh, we, who are as good as you, meaning the king, and altogether better than you, swear to obey you as long as you abide by our fueros, by those relations. And if you don't, we won't. Uh, so, uh, again, it's a, maybe a little bit of an extreme uh, form of expressing it, but I think it's quite graphic for a short explanation. Yes. Uh, the king, and then we come to the fourth part, the king. The king uh, is an effective king. It's not a puppet as in the form of constitutional or parliamentary monarchies. The king rules, but his powers are limited by traditional laws and, of course, by natural law and God's law, and he has no authority against those. He needs to abide by them. Mm -hmm. So he's an effective ruler, definitely, uh, but he's not a contemporary ruler because it's interesting nowadays we find all these ideas, all these words being thrown around by uh, uh, contemporary historians of absolute monarchy and despotic monarchy and all that. Often without realizing that even, even at their most despotic, uh, the old monarchies, like, I don't know, take Louis XIV in France, for example, did not at all exert a power similar to modern, uh, to contemporary democratic governments. Contemporary democratic governments have, yes. have a power in every respect far, far exceeding what the old monarchies would even attempt to have. They, they couldn't even dream of it. Uh, it's not that they didn't dream of it because they were not capable of attaining it. It's that it was beyond the uh, the, uh, the very mindset of the time to try and, and acquire and exert as much power as modern governments do. Yes. I don't know if that explanation will do or maybe I've wandered away from the subject. No, certainly that's uh, really fascinating and I think will serve as a very helpful foundation for some of the other questions I'd like to explore in our time. So to return to a point that you made, I think 
um, right at the beginning about the the nature of Catholic unity. This is something that I think traditional Catholics can dwell on because the since the doctrine of the social kingship of Christ the King has been very much eclipsed in the modern church and uh, attacked and more and more Catholics are rediscovering this this great truth which is the the mission of the lay apostolate as well they continue to think of the confessional state as the ideal to be aimed for whereas as you said there the the Carlist movement has always realized that Catholic unity is the ideal could you say something about that, about how con- the confessional state this is actually is, is a decadence because it is, correct me if I'm wrong, but it arises from the, the religious wars and the, the Treaty of Westphalia and the idea that, for example, on one side of the Rhine, a man is justified by faith and then on the other side of the, the Rhine, soteriological truth changes so that he's justified by faith and good works. Why, why is Catholic unity the, the only uh, answer? Yes. Yes, you're absolutely right in, in uh, sort of dating the idea in, in, that, in that time. Uh, it would come into Catholic countries later, basically uh, in the 19th century. And uh, it would come through two ways, I should say. The first, of course, is uh, in some countries, mostly in Spain, it was impossible to introduce uh, revolution in its raw form. Uh, like the French Revolution. That didn't stand a chance here, uh, as the Napoleonic War uh, clearly proved. Mm -hmm. Uh, People, even the most humble, would not tolerate it. Uh, Any attempt at establishing a new regime that didn't at least pretend to be a monarchy and pretend to be a Catholic monarchy at that would have uh, most mostly every other Spaniard, not every other, every Spaniard, uh, jumping at the neck of those that were trying to impose that. So revolution had to disguise itself as a monarchy, a diminished monarchy, with uh, some people uh, holding the crown that were not entitled to, uh, to, uh, to proper succession rights. And uh, at the same time, it had uh, to issue a series of constitutions that in their preamble, uh, pompously uh, affirmed the uh, the uh, Catholic confessionalism uh, of the uh, of the state of the government at the time uh, but of course first problem is if uh, the rele- if religion is upheld by a legal proclamation it may as well cease to be upheld the moment the legal proclamation changes if uh, if you uh, are ruled by a written constitution that was put together by a group of people. Uh, well, another group of people may change that, and then you will have a new uh, referral, like uh, modern secularism at the time. However, that uh, kind of trick of confessionalism was also a trap in which a number of prominent Catholics and churchmen fell in the name of the lesser evil policy. Now, the lesser evil policy has been the source of the greatest evil imaginable. Uh, But uh, at certain points in history, it's a temptation for many. And uh, some of them probably well-intentioned, some of them not so well-intentioned. So 
you know, you have those two influences. Those people that will go for the lesser evil thing and people that know how to disguise the real intentions. For example, the very much um, misrepresented uh, Constitution of 1812, a, uh, they usually call it the first Constitution in Spain, it's actually the second after the Bayon Estatute that the Bonapartes put together, uh, which is a a disgraceful thing, a totally illegitimate constitution made uh, by totally legitimate Cortes, but never, never mind, we won't get into that now. But it has a, a preamble that uh, is uh, really Catholic in the, and aggressively Catholic, meaning that it, it states not only the Catholicism of the Spanish monarchy of both sides of the ocean, but also the strict prohibition of any other form of religious thought or worship. But then, as you proceed on after the preamble, you realize that the Constitution is basically a copy of the French Revolutionary Constitution of 1791, actually the most radical of them all. So uh, it is uh, immediately contradicted, but nicely disguised. Uh, so Catholic unity, on the contrary, has no possibility for that sort of trick. Men and we are Catholic because we are Catholic. We're not proclaiming it. We, it's just a fact. We were born Catholic as a society, we were born Catholic as a uh, political community, as a monarchy, and uh, that's the way we are. And if we are not Catholic, we're nothing else. Yes. And then at the uh, late 19th century historian Marcelino Menendez Pelayo, who was a curious case, because he was, in his thinking, he's basically a traditionalist, in his political practice he was a liberal conservative. Uh, so he's always been... an interesting presence in, in Spain's history and in Spain's historical thought there. But nevertheless, most of, his, uh, uh, most of his writings, most of his speeches are right and sound traditional. Uh, he basically st stated something pretty obvious, which is the moment uh, Spain ceases to be Catholic, it simply ceases to exist. Uh, we cannot be anything but Catholic. A society has always has a religious uh, foundation, what, even if it doesn't acknowledge it, like modern secularism, which is a form of religion with a set of dogmas and uh, that actually enforces upon people. Uh, in our case, that's what binds us, to, binds us together. That's why traditionally we've talked about these Spains in plural hmm. uh, rather than Spain. Because uh, the Spains are formed by a series of kingdoms and, uh, and principalities and regions linked together by faith in the same God and loyalty to the same king. And little else, uh, we will now refer to fueros. We've, uh, in everything else, we've stuck to our traditional laws, which are different from region to region. Uh, there's been an assorted to number of languages. Uh, Spanish is the most common and historically has become the common one, but the others were used naturally. In fact, the very idea of an official language only comes into existence in the, in the 20th century, and that's already within the liberal state. N nothing such as uh, official languages existed. Uh, so, in, it may be, but this is a, it will uh, be a very long discussion, but it, it may, uh, refer to what some thinkers, uh, um, actually in the, in the English-speaking world, have uh, labeled 
natural uh, political communities as opposed to artificial political communities. Yes, organicism. So, yes. So, uh, the Spain Carlism defense is actually the old one, the natural one. Uh, it is not an ideological construct of any sort. Uh, Carlism appears in history basically as a movement of resistance. It, uh, it is actually the old Spain resisting the revolutionary imposition and, and refusing to cease to exist. Uh, that's basically the, 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 the meaning of Carlism up to this day. Uh, we uphold what we were and the only thing that we can actually be. Yes, I, I, rem I remember reading from uh, Dr. Ayuso how the the first Carlist movement, the early, the nascent Carlist movement in the early 19th century from Don Carlos uh, V, it was an organic reaction to a, a cancer that had invaded the body politic and was in inchoate, inchoate recognition that if that cancer wasn't eliminated then it would overtake the body and destroy it. But I want to just explore a little bit more about the something about the Spanish soul because Dr. Ayuso once said to the American Dr. Robert Hickson something very interesting. He said, quote, the true soul of Spain is to be found in the incarnation of Christian chivalry. And it's noticeable that Spain is the only nation in Christendom to militarily defeat the three or three of the great enemies of the Catholic Church in history. The Mohammedans in uh, the Reconquista, the, the longest war in history, the liberals in the with the guerrillas against uh, Napoleon, and then the Reds, the socialists during the the civil war of the last century. So, and and this can this is also quite mystical because I I'm sure you've heard of the the small T tradition that the the legionaries that put our Lord to death were actually from Spain, uh, were Hispanic, and so there's something. Um, there's something very visceral about Spanish Catholicism and you see it in the writings of St. John of the Cross where he says that the crucifixion must be depicted as realistically as possible and you you see it in the in the tr incredible statues and realism of the of the crucified Lord in Spanish churches and in the Semana Santa processions as well and finally, uh, Salvador Dali once theorized that the very name of Spain, Espana, has a, a relationship to the word espina, meaning thorn. So I wonder if you can say something about this primordial light of the Spanish soul. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, there's actually been quite a bit of controversy as to whether those Roman legionnaires were actually from Hispania or were from uh, Asia Minor, there's another option. Something else that, that, that is probably more agreed upon is that uh, uh, Flavia, Pontius Pilate's wife, was actually from Spain, from, from wow. today's Leon. And um, I'm sure you know that at least for the, traditionally in the Eastern Church she's been held to be a saint. Uh, but uh, yes. yes, the idea Spanish Christianity is a very early one. Uh, and there's a historian, I forget which one now, of course, that uh, actually stays uh, by the uh, by the fourth century uh, Roman Hispania was basically all Christian. Uh, 
so it's a, a very early kind of total Christianization. And uh, at the same time, many of this uh, authentic Christianity was at some stage common to pretty much the whole of Christendom. But unfortunately, many other areas in Christendom later suffered other influences that uh, Spain was largely free of. Uh, if you look at the history of Spain, for example, the religious history of Spain, it is remarkable how the country was kind of uh, a natural repellent for heresies. Uh, very few important heresies ever took root, well, I should say none of them took root, but uh, had presence, some did, very short-lived, and were quickly eliminated, and they left basically no mark. Uh, and also, modern Christian sensitivities, as the ones influenced by uh, late Renaissance thinking, um, Erasmism, uh, and then uh, Protestant uh, contagion, as it happened in, in many other uh, European countries, and then uh, Jansenism and Gallicanism, etc., did not really ever influence Spanish Catholicism, mm. uh, even in devotional forms, artistic forms, etc. So uh, Spanish Catholicism pretty much stuck to those always realistic ways. Um, maybe, of course, uh, never losing sight that the passion and death of our Lord are the center of our faith, and I purposefully leave resurrection out, not because it isn't, but because nowadays it is very often relied upon to forget the passion of death and, and death, and, and actually we're only, we're only redeemed and we're only open to be saved by the passion and death, uh, and there's no resurrection without passion and death, of course, and there's no atonement of sins without the passion and death of our Lord. Well, that was never lost sight of in Spain. and. Uh, even you were referring to the Hollywood processions. We are now in a historical law of, of Catholicism in Spain. We've, it's never been as bad as it is now. Nevertheless, it's interesting how in uh, mostly over, all over Spain, except in some regions that have been decatholized even further, uh, Hollywood processions remain very important. The typical criticism aimed at them will be that they are superficial and uh, folklore and whatnot. Well, there's an element of that, of course, but at the same time it is remarkable that they've survived in spite of the open hostility from the clergy. <laughs> it, is, it is actually uh, the people that have preserved those. Uh, the liturgy of the streets. Yes, exactly, and a, and a catechetical form of reminding people of what Holy Week is all about, which uh, is, uh, has to be seen because it's out, out in the streets for everyone to see it. Yes. Uh, and also, if, if you want even a, a proud, aggressive display of Catholicism, uh, those uh, remains of the old order are you know, quite hopeful when... Uh, when you see them. There's the element, of course, once in th especially in those places where the uh, uh, religious confraternities are still very important, those uh, clergymen that were so hostile to them have reduced their hostility in order to be able to try and conduct them, and uh, their influence is, uh, is obviously bad, uh, just to 
quote a personal example, I think is pretty good at that. I belong to a certain religious confraternity that uh, makes its procession on uh, on actually on Holy Tuesday. Uh, and uh, Good Friday processions are usually referred to as the silent processions. But actually, they usually call ours silent procession, even if it is on Tuesday, because it's absolutely silent. Uh, every member of the confraternity uh, makes a vow of silence before going out. And it's a long one that takes hours, and, uh, and it's quite a hard one. Uh, but of course, there's always one person that breaks the silence and acts stupidly, the chaplain. Uh, right. <laughs> so, uh, that that's uh, probably uh, the uh, great, the most, the greatest danger that the survival of a Spanish Catholicism has is today's clergy. But <laughs> I'm digressing, so we'll leave it there. Spain, hammer of heretics, light mm. of Trent, evangelizer of half the world, sword of Rome, cradle of Ignatius. This is our greatness and our unity. We have no other. In what way does the Carlist movement serve as a bridge, the purity of the Carlist movement serve as a bridge to the old Spain, to Hispanidad? Mm -hmm. Actually, the quotation just made, as I'm sure you know, is from Marperino Menendez Pelayo that I just mentioned. Uh, and it's, of course, a perfectly, uh, perfectly valid definition, even as for today. Carlism is the, uh, the last remaining part of that Spain. It's the last uh, mm, uh, that was the last trench that we uh, uh, that, that we resist in. Uh, to start with, I was going to say in contemporary words, no other political movement represents that. But of course, although contemporarily Carlism is also a political movement, as we mentioned before, it's not essentially or originally that. It is actually kind of natural resistance that eventually evolves into a political movement when, uh, it, when it cannot totally defeat the uh, revolutionary regime imposed upon us. Uh, and uh, Khalid has never ceased to be and has never ceased to contemplate itself as that, as the uh, last surviving stronghold of the old Spain. And uh, it's attempted... Uh, to preserve that pol that political thinking, that uh, even those social structures uh, that uh, belong to Spain's past, has uh, always tried to keep them alive, or at least to keep their memory alive, so that they eventually be restored. So yeah, that is uh, that's the that's the very essence of it. That's why the attempts of deviation that Calvin has suffered throughout history, especially in the last uh, 60 years or so, have always ended up failing because the moment uh, any new ideas are introduced, Calvinism ceases to be that last remaining, last, uh, uh, I'm trying to look for a word which of course I cannot remember, but uh, that lasts the stronghold of traditional Spain, and uh, it becomes something else. It becomes uh, another political movement, and that simply doesn't work. And uh, it's, of course, not followed by Carlists. Carlists may get discouraged and go home, but they're not going to join any political experiment. Dr. Ayuso made a very interesting observation 
even a, a deliciously provocative one actually um and he said <laughs> that he said that spanish traditionalism carlism is really one of the only doctrinally pure counter-revolutionary movements in europe so he says that in france for example what might be called counter-revolutionary thought is is plagued by numerous doctrinal errors if we think of the theological school, quote-unquote, of de Maist, Blanc Saint-Bonnard, or even the, the positivist, the later positivist school of Taine and Murat, it, it, it evinces earlier um, Gallicanist and uh, absolutist yeah. currents, which, which are not helpful. And it, it sort of moves in Cartesian channels. And to quote from him, he says, this means that after the great revolutions of the late 18th century, the reactions were to be constructed from certain branches of the same anti-metaphysical matrix that brought forth the Enlightenment and the revolution against those who wanted up, who wanted to rise up. In Spain, this was not the case. All throughout Spain, the tradition of Christian philosophy was maintained, and I say this of mainland Spain as well as Spanish America. This is what explains the singular purity of Spanish traditionalism, scholastic philosophy, and basically the survival of Thomism. Whatever your point of view, along with some great discoveries and probably some not so small errors, there remained a tradition of sound thought. This distinguishes the traditionalism of the Hispanis, Hispanic stamp, not only from that of France but of Europe in general. Thus, in the Anglo-Saxon world, the metaphysical split observed in France is also sifted through political events which reconciled the revolution with its evolution. In Germany, meanwhile, Romanticism, heir to the spirit of emancipation formed by the Enlightenment, added a Dionysian element to the revolt that tinges all counter-revolutionary thought, and in Poland, limiting ourselves to a few examples, the counter-revolution is linked almost exclusively to pure nationalism, i.e. the assertion of independence. Then, in all countries, in all cultural fields, except in the Spanish doma domain, we find that the counter-reaction is played out in a series of side events that detract from its purity of doctrine. This does not happen among us. As you rightly say, that's uh, both uh, provocative and uh, true. Uh, it, when uh, dealing with uh, traditionalists from other um, cultural traditions and uh, with Catholic sympathizers abroad, if these things are mentioned, they always uh, bring about some sort of a uh, public relations problem. Uh, how to word it without sounding offensive, which is of course never the intention, or even sounding nationalistic, which is uh, something that uh, horrifies the true Carlist, because nationalism couldn't be farther from our mindset. But uh, unfortunately that's historically true. I mean, uh, Take the example of France, which may be the most prominent in the sense of how things mix there. Of course, although there are uh, uh, strange elements in his thinking, I would probably exclude the Mest from that, from that list as the Mest was not French, but Savoyan. Uh, and actually, he was very clear about it. He always rejected uh, being considered a Frenchman. Uh, but Okay, for example, this French monarchy has Protestant kings, 
and I do not mean uh, Henry IV that converts in order to become king of France after being king of Navarre and all that. I actually mean Francis I and Henry II. Francis I and Henry II, and we are already going back to the 16th and 17th century, uh, were formally Protestants. Uh, Francis I is even a contributor to the Confession of Augsburg. Uh, he is uh, all the way a full-fledged Protestant. Uh, also, false philosophy, mainly Cartesian school, makes uh, its ingway uh, into mainstream uh, French thinking to the extent that it actually extinguishes uh, proper scholasticism. It, uh, Thomist, Thomistic thinking is not to be found in France in the, in the uh, 18th century. It's simply not there anymore. And that, considering that what we talk nowadays called France, uh, offers some historical difficulties. Like, let me explain. The uh, reforms of the Council of Trent, for example, only come into effect in Parisian France, and I will now explain what I mean by Parisian France, after the revolution, with uh, the Napoleonic restoration of the church. Prior to that, in those parts of what we nowadays call France, that were directly under the kingdom of Paris historically, they had never been accepted. The Gallican I was going to say heresy, This it is a heresy, but then of course it is a public relations problem again, so I won't dwell into it, uh, had prevented it. There is also, of course, Burgundy France that uh, for a long time was actually effectively under the uh, the kings of the, the Spains as well. Uh, now in Burgundy France, meaning uh, Le Franche Comte and French, nowadays called French Flanders and other areas, those had actually tridentinized in time, but, and it's interesting as a French historian himself observes, uh, Jean Dimon, uh, that between the uh, 16th century, almost 15th century, and the 19th century, Parisian France does not produce a single cent. Uh, well, I, I don't know now with the uh, um, how can I put it, free market canonizations uh, that started flourishing after the 1980s, but prior to that, they only had one blessed proclaim that was actually heavily critical against the kings of France, can't remember the name now. Uh, all other French sense of the period actually come from the uh, Burgundy influence area, uh, and also from the... Uh, areas like the Roussillon and Sardinia that were under the king of the Spains until Louis XIV. Uh, that basically means a country that had not done away with Catholicism entirely, but hindered it in such a way that when revolution came, even counter-revolutionaries were, as Professor Ayuso points out, basically revolutionaries of a more conservative sort. So they, they had to improvise a counter-revolutionary thinking, and they didn't have the tools. Uh, uh, Neo-Thomism was the big thing in France and many other um, countries uh, at the beginning of the uh, 20th century. Uh, Neo-Thomism was never important in Spain simply because the old Thomism had not disappeared, and it was still the core of uh, both theological and political thinking in Spain. I don't know if that explains it. or. No, that's a, a very acute analysis and 
I think there's a lot there to to research and consider. I'd like to move forward in history a little bit to the 20th century. As I remarked earlier, such a prominent characteristic of Carlism is its longevity and its frequent revivals throughout the centuries. And when researching Carlism, figure that really impressed themselves on me was Manuel Falconde in the the 1930s in particular. He was remarkably young when he became was it the general secretary of the traditional communion. But he'd done incredible things in the the south of Spain, and I don't think it's a stretch to say he was something of a of an organisational genius. What I think is is particularly interesting is how. He utilized what you could call modern methods to advance the cause of tradition. And I wonder if you could comment on how the the traditional communion grew in the years prior to the Civil War and what that can teach us today about how a traditional Catholic movement can utilize uh, modern methods while still maintaining its, uh, its doctrinal purity and cohesion. Yes, uh, you're definitely right. Manuel Falconde was an organizational genius. It wasn't the first time, it was not the first time that uh, Carlism had uh, reorganized itself uh, in such a way as to be up to the new ways, new times, and use them uh, to its benefit or to the benefit of its cause. Uh, In the 1860s, 1870s, there is something similar. Uh, when in the times in the early days of Charles VII, uh, new propaganda techniques and new organization are brought about, and they become quite successful. Uh, even after later on, after uh, Carlist defeat in the Third Carlist War, there is again a new reorganization of things when uh, the circulos, literally circles, the clubs, Carlist clubs, uh, become widespread in Spain, and they uh, are effective in keeping people together and. Uh, and uh, assuring the transmission of the cause and its principles and its conception of life. Uh, and they will go on until the war, and uh, they will have a very hard time recovering after the war, because, of course, the uh, uh, General Franco's attempt at a totalitarian state uh, made, made them illegal, so they, they had to survive in clandestinity and all that. Um, but. Uh, Don Manuel Falconde has a, a very interesting approach to things. He was the first prominent politician that decided that the Republic uh, was uh, proclaimed in 1931 had to be done away with and that would probably require violence. Uh, and the Carlism is different uh, from the other forces that joined to overthrow the Popular Front in 1936, because the others were only against the Popular Front. Uh, Popular Front was, in spite of their romanticization literally, uh, the Popular Front was so bad that brought together very different people and very different forces, including historical Republicans. I mean, most of those Republicans that had proclaimed the uh, Republic only five years before sided on the national side against the Popular Front. Mm. That's why it is so wrong to call uh, the Red Side in the Spanish Civil War, as it is current nowadays, the Republican side or the Loyalist side. There was nothing of the sort. Unfortunately, I would say as a Catholic, the Republicans were on our side, not on theirs. Uh, 
Yes, and uh, Freemasons as well. And Yes, yeah. of course. Well, Freemasons works on both sides, but that's another story. Uh, so, the Manuel Falcón the, takes the traditional communion and with the king's agreement and, and express support, basically turns it into a war machine. Yeah. A, very effect, a very effective propaganda machine as well. They develop new forms of propaganda. They uh, renew the Carlist press of the time. For example, the, uh, he took the old per, uh, Madrid periodical El Siglo Futuro and turned it into what became the uh, Spain's most modern newspaper of the time. Everything, machine redistribution, etc. Uh, and yeah, the uh, Carlist propaganda and activity between 1932 and 1936 was hectic. Uh, and it's impressive to see the number of uh, new Carlist organizations that were put in place and the enormous expansion in numbers. But that was another thing. The increase of sectarian attack against the faith and against the church was so sudden and so strong. Mm. And moderate Catholics were so inefficient in opposing it that uh, many people that had so far supported the lesser evil thing and said, well, things are not so bad, at least for the faith and public morality and all that, uh, all of a sudden realized that they could no longer uh, pursue those policies and something stronger was needed. And uh, Calis was there and it became a, a, a center of attraction for uh, many Catholics that were formerly apolitical or that had uh, allowed themselves to accept uh, more moderate forms. Uh, so, yes, the, uh, in 1936, Carlism is an enormous force, to the extent that Manuel Falcón even considered the possibility of going to war alone, without mm. uh, other forces or, uh, or the agreement with, with certain portions of the army. Uh, Basically, he also expected, of course, that those certain portions of the army would eventually be dragged along, but he actually had planned the uprising just as a Catholic uprising. So the uprising takes place in July 1936, and the war begins that um, Martin Blinkhorn called the Fourth Carlist War. As you say, the Carlist Requetes were crucial to the eventual success of the crusade the, so in in what sense did the 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 carlist forces and the, and the carlist movement help guarantee the success of the the nationalist side um, i'm thinking for example the use of the the two color flag and the infusing of the uprising with the characteristic of a crusade yes of course both uh, last things you mentioned, the flag and the, uh, the character of crusade for the war, were actually Carlist impositions. And I mean impositions. Mm. Uh, both the army and uh, other political forces in, uh, and characters involved in the uprising were for a republican dictatorship, something that did away with uh, the popular front, socialists, communists, and anarchists, and, and reinstalled order, and then it would resume business as usual. Uh, also, uh, the po political ideas of some of the uh, generals involved were, uh, well, couldn't be farther away from Catholicism. Uh, General Mola, the director of the uprising, was himself a Republican uh, soldier with uh, little or no religious interests, and uh, quite hostile to Catholicism, to, sorry, to Carlism, in fact. Uh, 
But it's interesting what would have happened if he hadn't died in that uh, accident because uh, in the after the uprising started, he was actually he suffered a sort of contagion of enthusiasm from the Carlists around him. His son and was a was a Carlist as well. Is that right? No, no, not General Mola's son. Uh, you're probably uh, General Sanjojo. Sanjojo. General San, but General Sanjojo himself was of Carlist extraction. Okay. Although both his both his grandfathers had actually fought in the Third Carlist War on the on the Carlist side. Yes. He had stranded away from Carlism, but when he was in exile in Portugal, Don Manuel Falconde started cultivating him, and he eventually was gained back for the cause. And he was, of course, the uh, the leader, of the military leader of the uprising, who, as as you know, also died in an accident. Uh, so General Sanjurjo would have guaranteed a uh, Carlist uh, prevalence on in the national side, probably, not definitely, but probably. Uh, General Mola will have been more in favor of it, probably as well. Remains to be seen, but there, there are hints that suggest it. And General Franco would have, uh, would rather have had a uh, less Catholic, more modern uh, political organization, definitely. Uh, when he's actually after the death of the other two generals, when he's actually proclaimed. Uh, Generalissimo and head of government in Salamanca on the 1st of October 1936, his first radio message actually says explicitly that the new government will be totalitarian and secular. Mm. Now, that actually causes such a stir, such a scandal, even with the bishop in Salamanca threatening him personally, that they gradually back up from that. And the Catholic atmosphere, the crusade atmosphere that had largely been instilled by Carlism was a social reality. Mm. So they couldn't ignore it. But we have at the time this strange thing. We were talking about confessionalism of government before. The first law of the new state that actually proclaims Spain to be Catholic is 1945. That is nine years after Franco gets uh, in charge of it. And uh, that's, of course, the year when the Axis loses the war. Yes. Uh, and Franco's government needs to rely upon the Vatican support to survive internationally. So then they give in. They cave in. And, uh, of course, as I said, social atmosphere was largely in favor of it. But they had maintained this legal ambiguity until 1945. So, nevertheless, Yes, Catholicism as was the main social reason for people joining the uprising. Uh, basically, Catholic Spain refused to allow itself to be exterminated. And uh, this is another of those elements that are usually done away with in contemporary accounts of the war. Uh, in 1937, due to political pressure, international political pressure, and to serious uh, public relations problems, the Red Government issues uh, new regulations allowing Catholic worship, but it must be kept private on the Red side, which simply means it had been forbidden before, point yes. one, and point two, it was totally ineffective because uh, all available priests had either been killed or were in clandestinity or had managed to run away and transfer to the national side. 
So we are really talking about a serious attempt to destroy Catholicism in Spain that was carried out by the Popular Front. Uh, the reaction against that on, as I say, old, old school politicians and uh, generals was largely just trying to moderate things. But then there was this strong Catholic influx that basically Carlism uh, channeled. So, yeah, it is a crusade because Carlists are there. Otherwise, it will have simply been a coup d'etat and a civil war. Yes. Yes, and the, the Red Terror, the mass murder of, of clergy and religious in particular, I believe was the, the, the greatest uh, mass killing um, of clergy and religious, I think, since the persecution of Diocletian. Yes, and in fact, in a much smaller territory, yeah, the numbers are frightening. Yes. The numbers are frightening, not to mention the, number, the enormous number of lay people that were killed uh, uh, for religious reasons. I mean, in my hometown, the popular courts found in, uh, enough for capital punishment, things like he carried a confraternity standard in uh, religious processions, so he was sentenced to death, or wow. this family had a sacred heart plate on their door, uh, which of course, it's not, it wasn't, there were thousands of them, but they were hastily removed in July 1936 to try and survive. Uh, that sort of thing, yeah. It was, it, 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 is, it is scary to think that when, to think that then it was a largely Catholic society and nevertheless it was attempted upon it. Yes. Uh, what sort of thing lies in future for us now that we are no longer a properly Catholic society at large? Uh, but yeah, they did attempt it. They did attempt it, and they, they very nearly succeeded. Yes, uh, well, I, I'd like to consider more um, contemporary questions in the, the latter part of this, this interview. So you, you touched on the, the interaction of the Franco regime with Carlism, and then there's the figure of, of, of Don Carlos Hugo Bourbon Palmer. His place as, uh, as the Carlist region prompts the question, how could a, a Carlism become left wing and how did this um, affect the the Carlist movement up to the current day and the the contemporary communion traditionalista and the regent his royal highness don sixto enrique de bourbon palmer and what happened at the montejura incident all right now the uh, interaction between uh, franco's regime and Carlism. first of all franco's regime is is a uh, is, uh, a very interesting subject on its own right, meaning that would probably be more accurate to refer to it as regimes, plural, uh, only with Franco at, at its pinnacle. Uh, but uh, if you consider that it changes from a crypto-fascist totalitarian state to an organic democracy, and from exaltation of the leader, the Caudillo, to a uh, traditional monarchy, uh, without a king, which was its later definition, uh, it shows that, uh, well, it was a constant improvisation. Mm. Bear in mind that it was, it, it had no head of state until the 1950s, because wow. Franco had been agreed uh, upon as head of government uh, in October 1936. Then his, um, his right-hand man at the time, also his... Uh, brother-in-law, uh, Serrano Suñer, introduced that funny thing of jefe del gobierno del Estado, that is, head of the government of the state, 
so that they could do away with the government and call him head of the state. But he was not constitutionally head of the state until the 1950s. Uh, when uh, the subject of uh, Francoism comes up in Spain nowadays, which is surprisingly often, uh, yes. considering that it's uh, been 40 years now, 45 years after his death, um, I usually say this because uh, I remember I, I was I was I'm old enough to even remember his days uh, and uh, Francoism can seriously only be condemned by traditionalists. Uh, let me try to quickly explain that it was not a good government but it was better than the government before it and better than the government after it. Uh, which doesn't make it good. It simply makes it comparatively better. Yes. As I do not uphold any sort of lesser evil policies, that's not enough for me. That's not enough for Carlists. And it, that also posed a, a constant problem for Carlists throughout his regime. In the sense that Carlism was against him and he was against Carlism very much. Uh, but at the same time, the uh, thought of uh, siding with the uh, Reds and the op opposition abroad was unthinkable for, for capitalists. So we were left in that position that we had to be against him, but at the same time be careful not to uh, sort of topple it so that the uh, the balance would actually benefit, or the, the loss of balance would actually benefit the Reds, benefit the Liberals, etc. Yes. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, the first open deviation of former Prince Carlos Hugo, Carlos Hugo was a very gifted man, apart from a, a true royal, but at the same time, he had a strange leaning for heterodoxy and for forgetting his royal duties. Uh, when he actually became part of uh, active Carlism and of Spanish politics in the late 50s, 1960s, his father, King Xavier, a most devout man, is said to have uh, congratulated and expressed his appreciation to the uh, Carlist entourage that looked after Carlos Hugo because, among other things, he had started going back to church again. Uh, that gives you an idea of what an oddball he was in in, in the middle of his family. And mm. uh, well, his first open deviation is actually collaborationism with Francoism, and that starts causing a stir within Carlism. He actually veers towards no longer antagonizing Francoism, but trying to get along, and eventually. Uh, ultimate aspiration be recognized as successor by Franco. He was definitely best positioned in that respect because Carlis was a strong political movement then with a strong political support that all other candidates that Franco could actually consider for his succession did not have. Uh, not at all, in fact. Uh, but at the same time, it was a very weird approach to politics from a Carlist uh, standpoint. And that started uh, antagonizing old Carlists and, and making people withdraw from active politics. Uh, that 
quite naturally, considering Francoins of the time, evolved into contacts with the European Christian democracy of the time, which were, of course, met even with greater hostility among uh, Cali's ranks, but still the addition to to the royal family and the presence of his father there was very much respected, prevented most people from openly disagreeing with that. Yes. And then, of course, the great disaster came, Vatican II. Yeah. And Vatican II enabled a complete turnover of things within the Catholic world. And for a strictly Catholic movement like Kalesma was, it was total chaos. Uh, how are we going to defend Catholic unity in the light of the uh, conciliar declaration on religious freedom? Yeah. And that's only one of the many elements of it. Uh, even those Catholics that were most militantly Catholic in the apparently or seemingly good sense in the 1950s often became weird revolutionaries third world style in the 1960s. Uh, also, for a movement with such a large presence of clergy within its ranks, as Carlis was, well, when, when clergy lost their heads, so did most of the people around them. Um, uh, a late Carlist uh, thinker and activist, Jesus Evaristo Casariego, used to say that Carlis could have easily survived strong enough to overthrow things in the 1970s to either the treason of Prince Carlos Hugo or to Vatican II, but to the combined effect of both, right. it could only survive in small numbers, but yes. it could no longer preserve its strength. And the cultural it, and sexual revolution of the 1960s as well. Yes, that probably affected less Catholicism in the sense that even Vatican II and Novus Ordo Catholicism in Spain, mainstream, the mainstream one, be, still stay quite... Uh, morally and socially conservative until the 80s. Uh, but, yeah, definitely the, the, uh, those that were compromised with more modern, more extreme forms of progressivism, uh, progressivist Catholicism, easily fell to that as well. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the last remaining members of, the, of Carlos Hugo's party, uh, which basically, and, and after the 1980s, it basically disappears. But uh, they were weird, like they were uh, promoting abortion and uh, and the rights of the sodomites uh, at the time when other portions of the Spanish left wing didn't. <laughs> so. Oh yes, corruptio optima pessima est. So thank you, and you now have the the Communion Tradicionalista upholding the is it correct to say the regency of His Royal Highness Don Sixto Enrique de Bourbon. It is correct in the sense that uh, when Carlos Hugo definitely loses his rights, his uh, children are already in existence. So Don Sixto, his younger brother, uh, becomes a regent because he's still proclaiming the rights of his nephews. But that's a long time ago. His nephews have lost their rights uh, themselves completely and entirely. Uh, so Don Sixto is the in fact the facto the king, yes. uh, the king the facto the king the jure if <laughs> if you can follow that. Mm. Uh, official proclamation hasn't been made yet. Those things are usually done very carefully. 
although for a number of years now he's been uh, exerting powers that are usually considered uh, limited to royalty. Uh, for example, maybe the most uh, meaningful, one of meaningful, the most significant ones, maybe things related to the uh, order, the royal orders, like the order of, of, of uh, proscribed legitimacy, or the recognition of titles of nobility that have been, uh, in which the succession has been, uh, uh, in which the succession has been perturbed by the new laws in Spain. Uh, Don, if Don Sixto is actually asked to recognize the succession to a title by someone has lost it to a sister or whatever, he will actually do it. Uh, and, and in fact, it is common for the Carlist people when Don Sixto appears to shout, Viva el Rey, uh, yes. the king. Uh, even uh, three years ago, in the uh, anniversary, the uh, 50th anniversary of, uh, 50th, just a moment, three years ago, the 40th anniversary of his father's death, uh, a commemorative medal was coined, which simply says uh, Xavier the first, Henry the fifth, and that's on sixth. Yes. So he still goes by the title of regent, but everyone knows he's the king. Yes. And could you elaborate on the the place of Carlism in our contemporary world? and perhaps any considerations on the future. Firstly, um, any considerations on the successor of His Royal Highness, mm -hmm. uh, Don Sixto Enrique uh, de Bourbon, and also a quotation from uh, Don Sixto, um, I think maybe from that uh, celebration you referred to, he said, quote, Today there is a certain reaction. Proof of this is in this same meeting. Many Catholics, in view of our perseverance, approach us. The traditional communion boasts of having kept intact the principles of true Carlism and makes itself available to all who want to follow such principles in their purity. End quote. So I wonder if you could throw a little light on some of the prospects there for the, the steadfast witness of, of Carlism and potential for, for growth there. Elias de Tejada said that the, the panorama of modernity is the movement from Christianitis Maior to the Christianitis Minor to today's Christianitis Minima. And when I spoke to Dr. Ayuso last year, he said that even if the political um, arena is closed to us, uh, to Catholic action, we can work in the pre-political, which is the cultural. I wonder if you can uh, say something uh, to those points. I'll try. Uh, it is true that Carlism is reduced in numbers nowadays, although there are signs of recovery, and uh, not in large numbers, but new people keep coming steadily. And uh, it also maintains and even increases a capability of uh, fight in the cultural world that is probably unequal by, by any other political movement. Uh, if you see the uh, uh, yearly production of serious papers and books and reviews and uh, articles that come from within Carlism is actually quite impressive. Uh, it is also true that the very lack of any other movement or organization approaching even even uh, effectively to pretend uh, uh, the preservation of solid principles uh, attracts those that sometimes from from widely different uh, uh, 
original thinking come to Carlism as something uh, more solid? Uh, maybe an anecdote will help. The same uh, thinker I quoted before, which is not very well known international, but he was quite well known national, nationally in the past, Casariego, Jesus Evaristo Casariego, is now dead, uh, ran for the Senate in uh, Asturias in the uh, 1977 election and also in some partial elections uh, that took place about two years later he ran for Congress. And with a very limited budget he actually got quite a number of votes, I mean about 20,000 votes, which is quite a lot in a small region. Yeah. And uh, not long before he died I attended one of his lectures and uh, he was actually on the uh, Santiago de Compostela, but about Santiago de Compostela, but at the end two, two old men approached and uh, identified themselves as red veterans from the Civil War and uh, they were asking him when he was running for Congress again because they had voted for him uh, because he represented something solid, something real. Brilliant. not mushy modern politics and they wanted that. Yeah. Uh, well this is an individual but that sort of attraction uh, may be exerted by Carlism on many. Uh, for some the strict orthodoxy and from others that will hopefully be attracted into orthodoxy eventually that very solidity, that lack of compromise that Carlism represents becomes attractive. So is there hope for uh, a better future uh, for the cause? I think there is. I think there is. Uh, we are living through extremely difficult times. Uh, I mean, the uh, events in the world in these days are showing that uh, basically a large part of the population seem to have lost their heads and, uh, and they are actively encouraged uh, so by the media and by the powers that be. Uh, but there will always be a, even that Christianitas minima that you were referring to uh, might be enough to overthrow situ a situation uh, if not at first uh, internationally in a country like Spain it is perfectly possible it might happen and uh, whatever is left of Spain is uh, how can I put it strong enough to, if, if properly led, resist uh, the rest of the world, at least for long enough as to encourage similar reactions elsewhere. Uh, it's happened before. Uh, around the times of Charles VII and the Third Carlist War, there is also a revival of uh, Jacobitism in, uh, in Britain, and there's also a revival of legitimism in France, and, and those revivals are largely, largely due to the Carlist example and the Carlist influence in those countries. Yes. So could we hope for something similar in the future? We certainly can hope for, and it's not at all impossible that it might happen. Yes, I certainly share that hope and indeed intuition that following um, a chastisement that likely approaches, if man does not amend its ways, that Carlism will be will preserve preserve old Spain, the traditions of old Spain, for the participation in the universal Christendom of the reign of Mary. But I I just wonder if um, you you could say something on the Carlist succession. 
Uh, <laughs> that, that seems to concern many people nowadays, uh, which is of course understandable. Uh, back in that impressive period that you previously referred to, the reorganization of Carlis under the Manuel Falconde, something similar was happening then, as King uh, Alfonso Carlos was in his 80s, and uh, he had no issue, as you know, uh, the Queen, Maria de las Nieves, had uh, the habit of never separating from her husband, and that included the Third Carlist War. So at the front line, uh, she was riding along him, and a bullet uh, hit her horse while she was pregnant. She fell under the horse, lost the baby, and could no longer have any issue. Anyway, uh, when uh, their nephew died, uh, King Don Jaime, Don Alfonso Carlos became king. But he was the last of his line. In fact, he was the last of the Bourbons of the main line. So there was a lot of uh, unrest about what his succession might be. He was uh, a very strong old man, and among other things, he tended to expel from the organization anyone that asked the question. Oh, really? <laughs> Basically like, that's my responsibility, let me yes. deal with it. Uh, it is, what, what's happened with succession nowadays is a very strange thing. If you consider that the issue of Don Sixto's grandfather, Duke Robert of Parma, uh, Parma was very large, and that the family uh, stayed well uh, within a dynastical, uh, a dynastical framework until the 1950s, 1960s. So there were a lot of them to choose from. You don't choose an heir, but you know what I mean. There was uh, almost an inexhaustible supply of bourbons of Parma. Uh, but nowadays, because of uh, heterodoxy and be because of non-dynastical marriages, there's only two bourbons, not only bourbons of Parma, bourbons period, left uh, with royal rank. And those are Don Sixto and his sister Doña Francisca. And that's it. Uh, there are no royal bourbons left. Uh, which brings about something that might be a nightmare in other countries, but not in Spain. Why do I say that? Because Spain's traditional laws of succession are very detailed. And what is royal succession? Royal succession is basically saying those that cannot be kings, so that the next one that can is the king. Um, so it's simply a matter of following the lines. In this respect, uh, the uh, royal regulations of um, 1715 establish that if all male, male heirs of Philip V become extinct, the closest female becomes successor and after her, her male issue. Uh, now, the closest royal would be Don Sixto's sister, but unfortunately his two uh, oldest children died and the remaining one, for a number of reasons I won't get into now, has lost all rights. So then we have to go up to the next one, which is Empresita, which is Don Sixto's aunt, mm -hmm. uh, his father's sister. Now, the issue of the famous Otto von Habsburg is uh, non-dynastical, so it uh, doesn't work for Spain. 
but the issue of uh, his younger brothers is perfectly domestical. So that would be the first call. Mm, but of course, that's something that Don Sixto himself is taking care of, and I really cannot comment any further. No, thank you very much for your answer there, Mr. Enfante. I, I understand the sensitivity of the subject, but similarly trust in God's providence. Well, I would like to really thank you for your time, uh, Mr. Infante, and your thank elucidation you. of the the venerable, uh, sacral movement, the tradition of Carlism. I pray for your success in the future. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. I just hope that my rusty English won't bother your listeners too much. Not at all. Uh, it was you. a pleasure. Thank you.